The views expressed in this program are those of the host and not necessarily those of WVUD or the University of Delaware. WVUD and UD Information Technologies present Campus Voices, conversations with University of Delaware faculty, staff, and students about their teaching, research, service projects, and other interests. To introduce today's guest, here's your host, Richard Gordon, manager of the IT Communication Group at the University of Delaware. Thank you, Jason. And on today's Campus Voices, we've got a guest in the studio and another one who is Skyping in. Introduce yourself, local guest. Thank you, Richard. I'm glad to be here. I'm Paul Hyde with IT Academic Technology Services. Thank you, Jason, for that great intro. Good to see you again. I'd like to tell you a little bit about the Summer Faculty Institute. Summer Faculty Institute is sort of an institution on campus. The event website is ats.udel.edu slash summer. Starting on Tuesday, May 28th and running through Friday, May 31st in Gore Hall, we'll be featuring Terry Doyle, Ferris State University, Phil Hill with MindWires Consulting and a blogger at eLiterate, who's the guest on today's show, Ken Cavallo from iSchool Initiative, and Peggy Smith from Smith & Associates. And of course, it's all of the UD faculty presentations that are the highlight for many participants. It's a great opportunity to find out what's new from other faculty who are committed to great teaching at the University of Delaware. Paul, why don't you tell us why we're talking to Mr. Hill. I'd like to introduce educational technology consultant Phil Hill, who is co-publisher of the eLiterate blog. Phil has spent the last 10 years advising online education and educational technology organizations and providing insights into the broader educational market trends and issues. Phil helps higher education institutions develop effective strategies to understand and implement online educational programs. Phil's clients have included the University of Iowa, UCLA, University of Maryland, University College, and now the University of Delaware. Phil is the co-founder, along with Michael Feldstein, of MindWires Consulting, a strategic consulting company that helps higher education institutions and the companies that support them to make the necessary changes based on the new world of digital education. Phil Key noted this year's Educause Learning Institute online spring focus session entitled Learning and the MOOC, and is also written for Educause Review and has been quoted at Inside Higher Ed and Washington Business Journal. Thanks for joining us, Phil. Well, thank you, Richard, and thank you, Paul. I definitely appreciate the opportunity to have this conversation, and I'm looking forward to it. Well, let's start off with one of the basics, because not everybody who's going to listen to the show is a reader of the Chronicle of Higher Education. What the heck is a MOOC? Well, a MOOC, uh, if we just start out by the basic uh, definition from the acronym, is a massive open online course. And the concept is basically that you have an online course that is not uh, a walled garden. It's actually open for almost anyone to join. Um, it's online, it's organized in the form of a course, and a lot of the interest has come from the first letter, from the massive, that because it's open enrollment and it ex- takes advantage of open education and the interest in it, some of these courses have been truly massive with tens of thousands of students signed up for a course. It's not all massive like that, is it? 
Well, there's a lot of debate about what qualifies as a MOOC. Um, I would say with the commonly used terminology, almost all MOOCs have uh, 500 or 1,000 or more students. So from the common discussions going on, yes, they are massive. You know, when you're talking 1,000 students in one online course or more, up to 160,000 or more, Yes, they typically do tend to be massive when we compare it to what we're used to in higher education. Sounds like a very large version of flipping the classroom. I mean, how, how do you keep the students engaged in a MOOC? Well, that is one of the biggest challenges is that how do you actually engage with a student and uh, take advantage a lot of, the, of a lot of the pedagogy that we've developed over the years and what's effective? But it's probably worth looking at MOOCs as a phenomenon, that there is a reason why the what's known as the ex-MOOCs or the MOOCs that came out of the Stanford online courses, such as the Coursera platform, the Udacity platform, edX, that these version of MOOCs, there is a reason why they've been suddenly growing and attracting so many students who are interested in taking them. And so part of the reason that they're engaging is they're so easy to get into. They've actually been designed to reduce any barriers so that students can be interested in a topic, quickly sign up and get right into the course. And then once they're in the course, all of a sudden it's very easy to start watching a video that's been designed to be broken up into 8 to 12 minute chunks that take advantage of the human nature of paying attention And they're just easy. So although some people are saying, what about the interaction? There is a piece to be aware of that because they're so easy to get into, that's generated a lot of interest. Now, on the flip side of this, and you mentioned the flipped classroom, just listening to a lecture, even if it's recorded, and then taking quizzes is really a limited pedagogy, and it's very limited in terms of getting student interaction and student deeper learning. So I think there's a lot, a long way to go where we need to evolve MOOCs and uh, instructors getting involved to add the personal interactive element, both student to instructor, but also student to student to provide the interaction. What you've just said reminds me of how I'm thinking. I could use a MOOC in my own classes in the computer science department here at the University of Delaware. I mean, to me, it seems that for someone teaching in a brick-and-mortar university, a MOOC could be an exciting resource to get some internationally known lecturers into your course material. Yes, uh, there actually are a lot of opportunities. Um, You definitely do not have to be in an online school or an officially sanctioned event to take advantage of MOOCs. Although the actual arrangements with the three big providers, Coursera, Audacity, and edX, those um, tend to be institutional agreements with the providers, so individual faculty can't just say, I'm going to do it. However, there's really a new movement and new interest in other MOOC providers. For example, Canvas, the LMS, I believe um, there's some usage of camp- Canvas on your campus. That The company behind that and structure created the Canvas.net, and it's specifically a MOOC platform to allow individual faculty to explore the concept. 
Um, likewise, Blackboard has developed course sites for faculty to jump on board and get going. And Desire to Learn just this week announced a MOOC platform. So yes, there are opportunities for individual faculty at brick and mortar institutions to jump in, take advantage, and and see see what happens by using a MOOC. And you mentioned the fact of actually you know bringing in um, another uh, subject matter expert or another professor from another school. The whole open education aspect of it and breaking apart the walled garden to open up education really does open up some possibilities for faculty who want to experiment with new forms of education and trying out, let's see what works and see how much this helps in my class. A lot of faculty will have guest speakers or have people like you Skype into a certain class session. Uh, But I think this really opens up the possibility that you can sort of pick and choose from a catalog of experts, or maybe I'd post something that other people would use. Yeah, so so really what we're already getting into in this uh, discussion right now is the fact of uh, looking at MOOCs from at least two different ways. One way is, as you as an individual instructor, how would you like to create a MOOC based around your course design and your content and therefore explore bringing in all kinds of different students or subject matter experts to participate in your class? So that's certainly one idea that's going on and one possibility. Likewise, uh, we're seeing a very, and by we, I mean Michael Feldstein and myself in particular, are seeing a very strong movement where people are starting to look at MOOCs as courseware. So the concept of saying you could actually take advantage of the MOOC content that's already out there on the internet for free bring it into your class and augment what you're doing and really add a new experience for your students. So really you could look at as an individual instructor, there are multiple ways you could uh, use MOOCs to explore. We're talking on Campus Voices today with Phil Hill and Paul Hyde from ITATS is also in the studio with us. And let's, let's just backtrack for a moment. Let's put MOOCs in some kind of a historical perspective. I can remember growing up in St. Louis watching Educational TV, how, is, how does MOOC fit into the overall history of distance learning and trying to reach out to people to come and learn? Well, it's interesting that you mentioned giving the historical perspective. And one thing I like to share with whenever I'm giving a talk or you know talking about MOOCs in general is make sure that people actually take a step back and think about how recently the MOOC phenomenon has come on and how what a small time frame it's really occupied and the fact that there's a lot of distance education innovation that happened before then. So you've mentioned uh, using uh, TV-based distance education. There have been a lot of precursors. The first MOOC really started in 2008, and that was a style of MOOC called the Connectivist MOOC. And this was very different than what we're seeing in most of the popular media today. This was the idea that you actually are supporting a webbed network of learning and using the Internet as a tool to encourage students to interact and to develop the course material itself. And then what we're more familiar with these days is the Stanford branch of MOOCs or the XMOOCs that we talked about previously, those really just started in 2011. 
So just a short, less than two years ago, this came about. So MOOCs are definitely a recent innovation. They're certainly not the first time that we found a way to distribute lectures and educational content through some sort of electronic media. However, they certainly are bringing something new to the table. This is, uh, there's tremendous interest and usage of MOOCs. And the fact that they're using the internet in a, in a very rich way certainly shows that it's more than just distance education from TV placed on the internet. There really is something intriguing that's uh, causing such huge numbers of students to be interested in this. Talking about huge numbers of students being interested, I know that the statistics that I've, I've read about are that, you know, if you have 100,000 students sign up for a MOOC at Stanford, only 10% will complete the course. But I then react with 10% of 100,000, that means 10,000 people completed the course. Yes, I, I think you're exactly right on both counts. First of all, most of the anecdotal studies of MOOCs so far shows that completion rates are 10%, typically less than that. And on the high end, I think the highest end MOOC of thousands of students had a completion rate of about two, uh, 20%. So yes, there is a low completion rate. But I think that we need to look at this in a different way than just a standard, what's the completion rate? First of all, you've mentioned the massive scale. Even with 10%, that's a huge number of students who can complete a course. But I would add to that, you have to look at with open education, you have different student types with different motivations. We can't directly compare this to a typical college course where students are enrolled and their goal is to complete the course, get the grade, move on, and get their degree. So very much you know, a singular objective, if you will, of students. In MOOCs in general, but also open education, sometimes you'll have students who want to come into a MOOC just for a particular topic for a week or two. And it's something that's engaging. They get involved in learning some of the material that's of particular interest to them. They get what they need, and they're gone. Well, you have to ask yourself, is that a bad thing? They didn't complete the course. That was never their intention of getting a course completion. They had an opportunity to learn. They identified what they wanted to participate in. They jumped in, and they learned from it. I've actually written about there are about five different student types with different goals within a MOOC. So it's really misleading to just apply one completion rate to all the students. But by the same token, I would add the fact that we do have to um, pay attention to retention. For those students who desire to go all the way through a course and desire to complete the course, we do need to have more proactive measurements on are they able to complete their goals? And if not, why not? What was it of the MOOC design that didn't allow them to complete the course? So it's a complex topic that there's some interesting ways to look at completion rates, but it's not as simple as simply saying 10%, boy, that's low. I'm really happy to hear you talk about that level of complexity because it underlines the complexity of the kinds of courses that are offered under the media heading of MOOC. I mean, there are all sorts of different kinds of things that are available. Yeah, there's a very rich variety of um, material. I think they started out uh, more generally in the te uh, technology field. So, for example, the initial course at Stanford that got the most attention was artificial intelligence. 
that was taught by Sebastian Thrun, uh, who went on to found Audacity, and Peter Norvig. Both of them also worked with Google. The initial course at edX, which is a, um, a joint effort of Harvard and MIT, was a circuits and electronics course. And so as the big X MOOCs developed, there, they came more from a technology-based focus, and that's probably where um, there's more the majority of courses. However, if you look at the catalogs today, it's certainly branching into economics, branching into social sciences, and even people who are exploring, can you do the humanities through MOOCs? So there's a lot of, and keep in mind, this is something that's less than two years old from the XMOOC perspective. So there's already been tremendous innovation and spread among the different disciplines involved in MOOCs in just under two years. Then why is there so much resistance from faculty at, at, at some of the brick-and-mortar institutions? Why, why, do they, why do they get their pants in a twist all about MOOCs? Well, that's a, again, that's a complex question. Um, there are certainly one of the valid criticisms of the current generation of ex-MOOCs is that they're perpetuating lecture-based course pe- pedagogy with um, multiple choice quizzes, and they're actually pulling us, there's a sense that they're actually pulling us backwards in terms of what education can be. There is a valid question about what is the pedagogy that's implied by the not just the design of the MOOC, but the platforms themselves lead to a certain pedagogy. That is part of the pushback comes from this, uh, from this design, and are we actually going backwards as opposed to innovating? But I think that there's also a much bigger issue about the transformation of higher education and wrapped up into budget and funding and sustainability of higher education. So there's a lot of discussion, as you're well aware, about the cost of education, student debt, state budgets for public higher education, and what is this going to actually do for funding of our institutions? So while this discussion is going on, you have MOOCs come along. And MOOCs have actually been, while I do think that they're innovative and they're causing change, the level of media discussion is certainly at the hype level. They have been overhyped. So if you take the overhype from the media perspective, you take the pain of the budgets and the funding of higher education, and then you throw in what can become an easy target of, look, this is just lecture courses. These issues all get conflated. And I think a lot of times faculty are pushing back saying, wait, what are we going to be doing with MOOCs? If all they're about is trying to create low cost higher education, well, that really means you're A, getting rid of a lot of faculty jobs and B, You're not helping students because they're not interactive enough. So there's a lot of factors that are causing some anguish or some fear uh, among faculty, and there's some legitimate pushback there. So I think a lot of the challenge is we need to move beyond the hype of MOOCs and also the um, overburdened fear of MOOCs and start looking at it as this is a medium and this is an opportunity for innovation what should we be using them for? What problems should we be using them for in terms of access to education, 
innovation and pedagogy and new learning opportunities, augmenting what faculty do in the classroom. There are real opportunities to use them in an effective way. But unfortunately, I think the combination of hype and the budget situation and the uncertain future of higher education is causing a lot of pushback. And to the extent that the pushback is trying to stop a simplistic MOOCs are the solution, let's just do it blindly, I think it's a very valid pushback that should be there. We need to think carefully about what do they do and are they really improving education and our mission. I think Paul has a question. Yeah, so following up on that, I'm wondering if you see a different trajectory for the acceptance of MOOCs outside of higher education. Are there things going on in nonprofit or special interest areas that are um, seizing the moment for MOOCs a little bit more quickly? I would actually say professional development. So for people who already have particularly their bachelor's degree, they're actually the group that are um, used, that's actually the application of MOOCs that's got more usage than higher education, at least in terms of students who desire to get an undergraduate degree. So professional development and, and growth within your job already is, one of, is a bigger area than straightforward higher education. They might be college classes, but the usage is more of a um, professional development. I do think that um, it hasn't happened strongly yet, but I certainly do see that it's going to be used for training-based um, development within either corporations or the military. And I know that uh, a lot of people are exploring how to apply MOOCs in that corporate training type of environment. I think uh, we've even seen an example recently where you could almost think of it as uh, organizational change management, where um, there's one group who's looking at doing a MOOC to educate farmers in sub-Saharan Africa on certain concepts and an efficient delivery to the policymakers who are helping them out. So it's almost a concept of educating policymakers and the support people within Africa on a very social issue that they're trying to develop. So long-winded answer to say, yes, I do think that the concept is broadening out beyond just higher education per se, even though that's the initial focus is college courses. I would hazard a guess, Phil, that some of the resistance in higher education is that this is a new model for presenting modular education. And one of the things that hundreds of years of development of the university culture in the United States is about developing a certain kind of accreditation process that leads to a degree. And in the professional world, you can see that individual completion certificates or something like that would be valuable. But I don't think that, that, that some colleges understand how to handle that flexibility yet. Yeah, I, th I think that's a very good point. And I would sort of combine it under the whole topic of the disaggregation of um, higher education, that it, it's really adding a lot of fuel to the fire of, you know, adding components of knowledge that you've picked up from different areas, being able to combine them. And there's a very strong push to say, well, why can't we get college degrees where I have different components picked up from different areas, whatever is appropriate. And as you rightly mentioned, our accreditation, our method that we've used to ensure quality within higher education, 
has been historically for a hundred years tied to the institution, that it's all based on an institution. And if you actually even look at accreditation rules on how they evaluate universities and colleges, there are certain rules saying you need to have at least X percentage of the courses and the course material coming from your institution. So certainly MOOCs are opening, questioning that assumption, and which is a threat to the future of institutions. There are a lot of schools that really need to rethink what they're providing. And I don't believe this is just coming from MOOCs. I think MOOCs are just the most public manifestation of the movement. Um, where a lot of uh, schools need to rethink what their missions are and uh, what they need to be in the future. So there is a threat of change, and MOOCs happen to be the most public face of that. And uh, that's led to a lot of the discussion. And let's face it, there are a lot of changes happening in higher education, and there are a lot of reasons to really question what's happening and put some careful thought into where we're going. Paul and his colleagues um, have provided the UD campus with uh, something called UD Capture. Faculty members like me can choose to record what goes on in a classroom. People on our campus have really found all sorts of extended uses of that. Paul, didn't we even have a chemistry professor who changed the way he was teaching the class by referring students to previous year's lectures? Sure. That actually uh, came back from the students. When they found out that his previous semester's lectures had already been recorded, they told him maybe he doesn't need a lecture again. They'll just go review last semester's lectures and start using the face-to-face class time for more active learning. That was a real um, eye-opener to him, and he started to change the, his use of time. And to me, I mean, that's that's what attracts me to this kind of concept in a brick-and-mortar university is to be able to get material like that that I, could have lectured, I would have lectured on from the whole open community. Uh, certainly, and I think you're picking up on what is uh, somewhat of an overlooked aspect of open education and MOOCs and the possibilities, and that is taking advantage of the knowledge and experimentation of individual faculty who are supported by the institution. So you mentioned the example of providing lecture capture and making it easy for faculty to record their lecture. Then obviously there was something in place that made it easy for that faculty to not only record them, but to figure out how to quickly change the course and use those recorded lectures. I think this is a good example of uh, what I call ad hoc online or hybrid education, where individual faculty are supported by the institution. They're provided with the tools and the support so that they can figure out what works in their discipline and for their course, and then craft creative solutions. The challenge for higher education is how do we take ideas like that and then spread them? How do we diffuse the innovations? And I think a lot of the opportunity with open education and with MOOCs is to allow and support this experimentation and provide methods to scale it once once these ideas work. As I've talked to some of the professors who have taught MOOCs, they're saying some of their greatest value is talking to other faculty who have taught MOOCs and sharing ideas and then trying things out. So it's this experimentation at the faculty level, but with support from the technology and the design and other people working together as a team to do experimentation. 
So, yes, I do think that there's an exciting area here of experimentation, but I would just add to it a critical aspect is we need to pay attention to how do you, when these ideas work, how do we take that idea and diffuse it and share it with others and let them benefit from what you've actually done within your class? Paul's got one last question he'd like to ask you. I just want to bring it back to something you were talking about earlier where we needed to separate the hype from the reality of what MOOCs are capable of. Um, so most of us have been exposed to the adoption curve for emerging technologies as they progress from hype through disillusionment and on to productivity. So where would you place MOOCs right now on that curve, and what do you see as the uh, the, the near-term outlook? Well, um, I actually think that if you're defining MOOC 1.0, so the way that the initial MOOCs that have uh, exploded into the popular media and discussion, there's those MOOCs that have been provided are clearly at the top of the hype cycle and actually starting to go into the trough of disillusionment. There is, and that's where a lot of the pushback is happening. The challenge is I don't believe that MOOCs are as, as simple as we know what the definition of a MOOC is and therefore it's going to follow the classic curve and then stabilize. I think it's a new concept that is already starting to evolve. So MOOC 1.0 might be in the hype part of the cycle, but we're already experimenting with MOOC 2.0 and more interactive MOOCs and maybe even smaller MOOCs. So there's a lot of experimentation that's going to develop new models of MOOCs that will go through their own cycle. Clearly, MOOC 1.0 is at the hype and it's overhyped and it's going to get disappointing. But... I think that it's just the first pilot phase of MOOCs, and I think it's going to broaden out into a much richer set of models. And those richer sets will be will be less hyped, but provide more benefit from a long-term perspective, in my opinion. Phil, this has really been exciting. I'm sitting here while you've been talking, thinking about what I might use out of this conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you very much, Richard. Thank you. Thank you, Paul, for inviting me. I've enjoyed the conversation, and I really appreciate the work that you guys are doing. Thanks, Phil. Thank you very much, Phil. That interview from Phil Hill gives everyone an idea of what they can expect at the 2013 Summer Faculty Institute. There's something for everyone who teaches at the University of Delaware. It's not too late to sign up at ats.udel.edu summer. It's free. It's fun. It's all about faculty and lunches on us. Thank you very much, Paul, for coming down and for arranging that great interview with Phil Hill here on Campus Voices on WVUD. Thanks, Richard. Thanks for listening to Campus Voices, a collaboration between WVUD, the broadcast voice of the University of Delaware, and UD Information Technologies. The views expressed on this program are those of the individual guests and do not necessarily reflect the official views or policies of WVUD, UD Information Technologies, or the University of Delaware. For more information about Campus Voices and to find archive copies of this and other episodes, visit our website. Using all lowercase letters, go to www.udel.edu slash campusvoices. We invite you to tune in every Thursday morning at 8.30 for Campus Voices on 91.3 FM, WVUD, and WVUD HD1, Newark, or online at WVUD.org. <laughs>